This is The World in Brief from The Economist. Our top stories. Eight people were injured, some seriously, after a gunman opened fire near the Western Wall in Jerusalem. Israeli police are treating the incident, which wounded a pregnant woman, as terrorism. Last week, a ceasefire was agreed between Israel and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, a militant group, after several PIJ leaders were killed by Israeli drones. It is unclear whether the events are linked, but tensions have been high. Volodymyr Zelensky, Ukraine's president, said that Russian troops who fire at the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant will become, quote, special targets. Russia seized the facility, Europe's largest, in March. Mr. Zelensky claimed that Russian soldiers were hitting Zaporozhye as an act of provocation and were also firing missiles at Ukrainian forces from within its compound. Authorities in Shanghai said that all schools in the city would reopen on September 1st following months of closures due to COVID-19 fears. The government initially closed all schools in March, though some high school and middle school students have been allowed back since then. Upon the full reopening, teachers and students will have to do daily coronavirus tests. William Ruto, Kenya's deputy president, appeared to pull ahead in the country's presidential election, according to preliminary results reported by Kenyan media. Earlier, it had seemed that Raila Odinga, the opposition candidate who has been endorsed by outgoing President Uhuru Kenyatta, was in the lead. Vote counting has been slow, and some officials have physically fought amid the tension. Over 40 people were killed in a fire in a Coptic church in Giza, Egypt. The blaze was caused by an electrical fault and a stampede broke out as people tried to escape. Children are believed to be among the dead. The country's chief prosecutor has ordered an investigation into the fire. Saudi Aramco, one of the world's biggest oil producers, posted record profits for the second quarter running. High oil prices pushed net income to $48.4 billion in the second quarter, up 90% year-on-year. Saudi Arabia and other members of OPEC, a cartel of oil producers, have been slow to increase production, despite requests from the West in an effort to lower soaring energy costs. Germany's energy network regulator said the country must cut gas use by 20% to avoid shortages this winter. The government, meanwhile, said public buildings will turn down thermostats in winter to 19 degrees Celsius, or 66 degrees Fahrenheit. The looming crisis stems from curtailed flows of Russian gas to Germany, seemingly in retaliation for European sanctions on Russia. And fact of the day, 507, the number of guns found in passengers' hand luggage by the Transportation Security Administration in 2021. And now, here's a deeper look at the day ahead. India celebrates 75 years of independence. Atop the Red Fort in Delhi on Monday, Narendra Modi will inaugurate the 75th anniversary of India's independence with time-worn theatrics. Yet this year's celebration will be relatively muted. Not because there is nothing to celebrate. The rupee's power may be at a low, but Mr. Modi is consolidated as never before, and some economic indicators are perking up. But for Mr. Modi, looking back is awkward. He has a long record of disparaging the Republic's early decades, suggesting that previous leaders had been too accepting 
of both European and Islamic influence. Only, quote, New India commands applause. One new thing for this anniversary is a government-organized campaign called Hargar Tiranga, or, quote, a flag in every home. The Rashtriya Swayamsevak Sangh, a Hindu nationalist organization where Mr. Modi started his career, once loathed the national tricolor, which nods to Islam as well as Hinduism. But though the flag is now in vogue, India's founding principle of pluralism is under attack. Under Mr. Modi's leadership, Islamophobia has become more prevalent. The Year of the Taliban Monday marks one year since the Taliban seized control of Afghanistan. In that time, the economy has collapsed as foreign powers have restricted aid and cut Afghanistan off from the global banking system. And the Taliban are back to ruling with theocratic tyranny. Men are harassed for trimming their beards. Girls are barred from secondary school. New rules dictate that women should only leave home when, quote, necessary. Yet there is a group of Afghans who are in one sense better off than they were a year ago. Villagers who lived on the front lines of the conflict, in provinces such as Helmand and Kandahar, are safer than they have been in years. A new report by International Crisis Group, a think tank, suggests violent incidents in the 10 months to mid-June were down 87% compared with the same period a year earlier. As winners and losers emerged, though, the question is whether that stability will last. Russia's War Olympics Few Western countries will attend this year's Moscow Conference on International Security, which begins on Monday. Instead, Russia has invited representatives from China, India, and a host of other countries from across Africa, Asia, and Latin America to hear its vision of a, quote, multilateral world free from America's yoke. The audience may be receptive. Globally, 28 countries lean towards supporting Russia's invasion of Ukraine, while a further 32 have remained neutral. For the first time, the annual event also coincides with two military extravaganzas. The Army 2022 Forum is a chance to sell Russian weapons. 45 defense contracts worth $6.8 billion were signed at the last exhibition, according to Russian state media. The Russian-founded International Army Games are a more sporting affair. Military personnel from countries such as China and Iran compete in combat exercises, including a, quote, tank biathlon. Russia's army might do better to focus on the actual fighting in Ukraine, where it faces the prospect of a counteroffensive in the occupied city of Kherson. Britain's Never-Ending Crises Britons have spent yet another weekend sweltering in a heat wave. A drought is afflicting large parts of the country. But the thought of what is coming this winter is grabbing even more attention. Life is increasingly unaffordable, and energy prices help explain why. The Bank of England predicts that annual inflation will rise to around 13% this October. At least half of this increase will be driven by soaring energy prices. Estimates from Cornwall Insight, a consultancy, suggest that households' average annual energy bills could grow from £1,971, or $2,380 now, to £4,427 in April. Talk of how to tackle the crisis has dominated the race to lead the Conservative Party and to be the next Prime Minister. 
On Monday, Sir Keir Starmer, leader of the opposition Labour Party, will lay out his own proposals for alleviating the pain, including a ban on raising energy prices. No politician has yet got ahead of the problem of surging bills. Despite the heat, the prospect of the winter is chilling. Edward Gardner and the Bergen Philharmonic Big bands can thrive in small towns. The Norwegian port of Bergen, despite its population of just 280,000, outplays much grander cities in the musical arena. The Bergen Philharmonic Orchestra had a solid reputation when Edward Gardner, an English conductor, arrived in 2015. Since then, its global renown has soared. On Monday, Mr. Gardner and his ensemble will appear at the Edinburgh International Festival. After performing Richard Strauss's decadent musical drama Salome, the BPO regularly dazzle in modern opera, Vikinger Olafsson, an Icelandic pianist, will join them as a soloist. The orchestra has burnished Mr. Gardner's career. In 2019, the London Philharmonic Orchestra appointed him as its principal conductor. And when his time in Bergen ends in 2024, he will not abandon Norway. In February, he was named as the next music director of the Norwegian National Opera and Ballet. Mr. Gardner has made plain his love of his adopted musical home. In Norway, he has said he learned, quote, to love the importance of an artistic institution being embedded within a community. Daily Quiz Our baristas will serve you a new question each day this week. On Friday, your challenge is to give us all five answers and, as important, tell us the connecting theme. Email your responses and include mention of your home city and country by 1700 hours BST on Friday to quizespresso at economist.com. We'll pick randomly from those with the right answers and crown one winner per continent on Saturday. Monday. Which American sitcom ended in 1983 with the most watched TV finale ever? Finally, here's the quote of the day from B.R. Ambedkar. Freedom of mind is the real freedom. A person whose mind is not free, though he may not be in chains, is a slave, not a free man. Freedom of mind is the proof of one's existence. That's the World in Brief from The Economist, available three times every day of the week. You can also hear interviews and analysis from our journalists, including our current affairs podcast, The Intelligence, on your podcast app. And subscribers to The Economist have access to each week's full edition in audio. Just download The Economist app to start listening. 